0: You would open the Bible to Revelation chapter 15. While you're turning there, Bobby, thank you so much for that, and church, thank you so very much for that. What a, uh, what a blessing it is to be uh, a pastor and the pastors of this church. Uh, we hope that we communicate it often. Uh, we got a good thing going here where we thank you all, feel that we love you all, and we feel that you all love us, and that's certainly how it should be. It's not always how it is, um, but we feel that. And so, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, um, I'm I'm especially thankful for the way the way you did that, Bobby, and the personnel team. Pastors here. Uh, I'm 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 glad that we are recognizing that we have uh, four pastors here, and all of us working together. Uh, we are really grateful that Josh Womble is doing so much better. We've been praying for him, and his health has improved greatly, and we thank God for that. And 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 also, just really thankful that you all included uh, Liz and Sam and, and my wife Val. Uh, truly, pastors are not not able. <laughs> um. You know, not, not able to do it without, without their wives, and so we are, we are thankful for that. Um, you know, I'm not sure what each, each church person thinks the pastor's job or responsibility is or what your expectations are, and there, there are lots of them. And to be quite honest, we want to, to meet all of those uh, in, in, in our hearts. We want to be good to you all and for you all. But the Bible tells us what, what a pastor is supposed to be. And it is people who are constantly making you aware of what the Word of God says. It's people who are teaching you about Jesus and how important He is and that He should be front and center in your life and that you should take Him seriously. Um, and I can say with, without any, any, any hesitation that that is the deepest desire and burden for the four of us. I mean that. Uh, we show up here... We do what we do, hoping, hoping, hoping that you will trust Christ and live for him. And may God keep it that way. I do want to say that at this church or at any other church, if pastors aren't faithful, it doesn't mean that God isn't. God is always faithful. He is altogether completely and true And the best thing for you. If ever in your life a pastor has let you down or disappointed you or hurt you or or caused you to want to give up or turn away or doubt or stop reading your Bible or stop going to church or anything like that, please be able to differentiate in your heart and mind that that's not how God is. That's not how God is. May God's word be the answer, the foundation, the rock solid stability for your life, his truth. And may pastors only help people recognize that. Thank you all. Thanks, church. Thanks for, thanks for doing that. Okay, Revelation chapter fifteen. Last week we took a book from the a break from the book of Revelation. Great homecoming. We had a great Sunday last Sunday. Uh, Marcus Layman was here to preach to us a, a great word uh, from him um, on the unstoppable God and what God is doing in the world. But today we are back to Revelation and we look at chapter fifteen. We're nearing the end of the book of Revelation. We've been in it for a while. And in some ways, we are getting the message because the message is the same, often the same week in and week out. of of this coming judgment and that Christ is the Savior and that God is in control of what's going on in the world. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, ugliness going on in the world. You've got the devil working and and his uh, demons are described as beasts here in the book of Revelation, Uh, and we're seeing all that. And there have been themes throughout the book of Revelation. We started with the seven seals, and then we saw the seven trumpets, And now we've come to the last group, the seven bowls. The seven bowls are in chapter 16. We're going to look today at chapter 15, which just introduces them. Um, But 15 and 16 clearly go together. Week after week, we have tried to remind you that uh, the timeline for all of this in Revelation is uh, not as clear as some would make it out to be, and it's not always chronological. At the end of the seventh trumpet at chapter 11, that was it. That was the end of the world. That was the return of Christ. That was the judgment. That was the end. And then it splits up, and it starts telling us some more things. It's explaining the devil and explaining some beasts and that sort of stuff. And at the bowls, we're going to visit back now to the end of the world and the judgment of God and the, and the, and the pouring out of his, his wrath. And chapter 15 parallels some of that in in chapter 11 with the trumpets. And just want you all to be reminded that the timeline here is, is not as simple as just straightforward flowing. But make no mistake about it, that this here today, when we get to the bowls, is about the end. It's about the wrath of God coming against sin. It's about the salvation that is available and that is out there and that Christ is doing in the world. If we, and I, I said this two weeks ago when I started talking about street preaching and hellfire and brimstone, right? If we're not careful, we'll get lost in thinking more so in the, in the judgment and the wrath and we forget of what God is actually doing, that you and I are a testimony to what God is doing in and out of the world with the coming judgment, And the beautiful message of the Bible and the good news is that God has free grace and God has mercy that he's giving to people, all who would believe. And they are rescued out of sin and death. They have been set free. And so we see salvation through judgment. If you've never heard that phrase before, that's a good thing for you to remember, salvation through judgment. A judgment is coming, but there's salvation in it. And chapters 15 and 16 are are all about that, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So read with me, starting at chapter 15, verse 1, we're going to read the entire chapter, which is only eight verses. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. That's what we're going to look at today. But stay right there and look at chapter 16, verse 1, the very next verse. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, I had you read chapter 16, verse 1, because I really just want you to know that 15 and 16 go together. I don't want us to overcomplicate this. I don't want us to feel like, okay, what's 15 talking about? I've got to make sure I understand that. And what's, what's 16 talking about? I've got to make sure I understand that. And all this is just too complicated. No, I don't, I don't want it to be that way. 15 and 16 go together. 15 is just introducing of how this is coming about. And 16 is the pouring out of the bowls, the wrath of God. Make no mistake about it. This is speaking about the judgment of God at the end of the world. Verse 15, uh, Chapter 15, verse 1 said it, and I, I, I paused or went slow for emphasis when it says, the seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. That is a real thing, and it's a real day that is coming It needs to be on our radar, we need to be awakened to it, we need to be ready for it. But while that's a real thing that is coming, there is also the love of God, salvation through Christ who died on the cross under the judgment of God. You and I as believers are never to think of the coming judgment of God without the context of the already-happened judgment of God on the cross. This is where so many Christians struggle. You may know somebody that's a Christian that doesn't like the idea of the judgment or the coming judgment. And don't get me wrong, nobody likes it. We're not here celebrating today just how awesome a judgment is going to be. We're not happy about that necessarily, We do glorify God in that he does what he does and everything that he does is right. But we understand judgment through the lens of the judgment that happened on the cross. And you may just think this is a book that we're reading, but I want to remind you that some 2,000 years ago, people used to get crucified on crosses. That was a way that people were killed. Today, there's ways that people are killed. And 2,000 years ago... In the Middle East, people were crucified on crosses, set outside the city, nailed to a cross, and left there to hang until they died. And that happened to Jesus. It happens to most people because they're guilty criminals. That's the just punishment for their crime. But Christ never sinned, He was wrongly accused, He was wrongly killed. He should not have died that day from an earthly perspective. Christ did die that day under the plan of God, the will of God for us. But may we never try to make pretty the cross of Christ. I know we love the cross and we celebrate the cross, and at the highest peak of Fairdale, Kentucky, there's a steeple on top of this church way up high, and there's a cross on top of that because that is our image. But it's an empty cross because they took Christ down off the cross and they buried him in the grave, and now it's an empty tomb because he lives. He's not dead. The cross He's alive. But may you never, ever forget that the cross is, And the killing that happens on the cross and the cross of Jesus was a serious thing and it was a judgment. It was a wrath of God poured out on the sins of the world, a real judgment. And so when we read in Revelation that there's a judgment coming at the end of the world, it's not just a topic that we're uncomfortable with. It's a much needed topic because judgment is a good thing when people have done wrong. But it's also a much needed topic because it is judgment by way of which God will save the world. That's what happened with Christ. And so we get to the end and it's talking about the wrath of God is finished and we're reading about this. We're we're paying attention. Another thing that you recognize here is how many sevens there are, right? There's lots of sevens in chapter 15. Verse 1, seven angels. Verse 1, seven plagues. Okay, then later at verse seven, you've got those seven bowls. There are a lot of sevens here. Well, Revelation has used a lot of numbers, and we've been reminded that seven is God's number. Ten represents power. Seven represents fullness, completeness. If God's going to do something all the way completely, he's going to use the number seven. That's why so often when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says seven spirits. It's meaning the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You see a lot of sevens here. Past couple chapters, we've seen sixes, right? Six, 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 and we talked about that. That's that's the devil trying so hard to look like God, mimic God, represent God, but he can't. He's always just a little bit off. Six, six, six is close to seven, 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 but it's not exactly it. He's off. He's a bad representation of what God's full, whole, pure, complete goodness is. We recognize that here. While you've got your page on chapter 15, I want you to turn back to chapter 11. and just want to show you a little bit and get you to hear what it says. Chapter Chapter 11 is the seventh trumpet, so this also is the end. This is another description of the end. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, you're going to hear those words, forever and ever, his reign forever and ever, a lot today, okay? Now, then they start singing, okay? This is the end of the world, the judgment, the coming of Christ, the setting up of heaven. And then they start singing, that's verses 17 and 18. But look at chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hell. So this end of the world, this judgment is a big, magnificent scene. Turn back to chapter 15 now. And we're going to start reading at verse 5. It's the end of the world, this is it. There's a song that they sing in verse 3 and verse 4, but look at verse 5 and look at how very similar this is to that which we just read in chapter 11. After this I looked and the sanctuary of the ten of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's the same wording. It's the, it's the same description. It's the same scene. 11, 19, and fifth of God's five to the end. The opening of the sanctuary, the opening of God's temple, the seeing of the Ark of the Covenant, signify, show, they mean that the judgment of God is here. This is what John is seeing at this point in Revelation. And we've seen it. And we're going to see it even more so uh, in the next chapter, chapter 16. That's what chapter 15 is about, the introducing of it. It's coming from God through these angels, and they've got these bowls, and they're going to pour them out. So today what I want to do is I want to focus in. Okay, we've gone over all that. We know that. We've heard that before. We're going to hear it again, all right? So today I want to focus in on these verses right in the middle. Verse 2 says the people who have overcome the beast or conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name are now standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they are singing. And what we have in verse 3 and verse 4 is this description of the song and the singing. The song and the singing. I want to focus in on this very part for the rest of our message today. Our first point today, number one, for kids with the listening pages, number one, the first point is the song. I want us to look at this song. Verse three says, they sing the song of Moses. Song of Moses. You know, we're at the end of the Bible. We're at the end of the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible, and this is the last one. This is the 66th. Moses is a big character in the Bible, but he's a big character in the second book, the Exodus. In other words, Moses' uh, significance on this earth was a long time ago, way before Christ. Moses comes onto the scene basically when Genesis ends. Exodus starts with Moses. That's how long ago he was. And not only are we at the last book, Revelation, but we're at the end of Revelation. We're at chapter 15. There's only 22 chapters. We're near the end of the whole book. And Moses is brought up. Not just Moses, but his song. The song of Moses. But you notice, right after it says that they're singing the song of Moses, it says that they're singing the song of the Lamb. And these aren't two different songs. This is the same song that can be described either way. So what is it about Moses and about his song that is so important to be brought up here at the end, in the judgment, around the bowls? Why would the song of Moses be so significant? Well, let's look at it. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Okay, it's the second book of the Bible, chapter 15. Please find it. Now, while you're turning to Exodus 15, I just want to point out again, I feel like I say this every Sunday lately, But Andrew Crawford does such a good job with the songs and picking out the music and all of that. He literally just had us sing a song called The Song of Moses about uh, the story of Exodus and the deliverance that comes through God saving through judgment in the book of Exodus, right? You know the story of Exodus, at least I hope that you do. And if you don't, listen up. God's people are now slaves in Egypt. They have miserable lives, and it's not going well. And God raises up Moses, and through Moses, God is going to deliver his people out of Egypt. But Egypt doesn't listen. They refuse. It's a neat story. It's an interesting scene of the back and forth between God, this very, Moses and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and it's this back and forth. And ultimately, what has to happen is this very strong judgment, matter of fact, 10 judgments that climax in the, in the 10th judgment, the 10th plague. And out of that judgment and those plagues and death there in Egypt, because they would not listen to God, God's people are set free, and that starts their journey to the promised land. That's what this is about. You have the 10 plagues in in the chapters leading up to chapter 15 in Exodus. It's a great story. If you want to read that about Moses and Pharaoh and the 10 plagues and all of that and the Passover and the, the blood on the doorpost and all of that good, good stuff, that's the chapters right before Exodus 15. Once you get to chapter 15 of Exodus, we have, if you look in your Bible, the Song of Moses. Not every Bible has like little little headings above the chapter, but most Bibles do. And do you see that? Above chapter 15, it says the Song of Moses. Well, what did we just see in Revelation 15? They're singing in heaven, at the judgment, the Song of Moses. This is a big connection that we've got to see. It's really good. Well, let's look at this song a little bit, okay? I'm not going to look at all of it, but let's look at a few things. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. What has he triumphed over? He's triumphed over the enemies of God that have been going against God and keeping them captive. He's triumphed over the enemies of God that have been going against God, that have been keeping God's people captive. And where they thought, we're never going to get out of here. We're going to die here. This is horrible. God has delivered them by way of the plagues, the judgments, and they've been set free. Because they sing about their freedom. They sing about their deliverance. And they sing it to God because he's the one who's done it. The song goes on to talk about all the ways that he did it. And it gets into the plagues and the judgments and the parting of the sea and all of that. Verse 3 has this incredible statement. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. They recognize that it took God's judgment, his working, his power, his ability to overcome an enemy to actually set them free. And that's the song of Moses. It goes on for 18 verses. But I want you to see verse 18. We've already seen it twice today. We've already seen it twice today, but I want you to see verse 18. What does it say? Exodus 15, 18, at the end of the song, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You probably thought it was getting redundant, but it proved the point. Didn't we just sing like 20 lines in a row? The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Yes. Yes. That's that's good leadership from Andrew. Whether you like the song or not, it's a song that comes directly from this. We just sang together what the Bible is getting us to see from Exodus and from Revelation. It's the song of Moses. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So when you turn back to Revelation 15, they sing the song of Moses What that does is that brings to mind the entire Exodus story, the entire Passover story. It brings to mind that God saved through that judgment, that God's powerful enough to do that. He's able to do that. He brought the prisoners out, he brought the slaves out, he brought the captives out, and he led them to the promised land, and he can do that. And they sang about that. But this is not just a history lesson. And so while it is fascinating enough that Revelation 15 says they sang the song of Moses, it tells us that they also sang the song of the Lamb. There's a song, interesting, interesting point this is. So is it the song of Moses or is it the song of the Lamb? Or are those two so beautifully connected? Well, they're definitely one and the same because there's not a big, long song here. Verses 3 and 4 is the song. And the song is described as both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Well, we just, we just read that one. Let's read this one. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's the song. That right there is a song of heaven that you and I will sing. That is a song that is sung because of our salvation, and that is a song that is sung because of our salvation in the face of judgment. God is doing what he's doing, and we recognize that he's the loving God that saves us. All nations will be a part of this, it says. That's the song of the Lamb. The Lamb reminds us of Jesus who gave up his life for the sins of the world. The Lamb reminds us of Jesus who is, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, who shed his blood for the sins of the world. And all of that came, finds its meaning through what we know in the book of Exodus with the Passover Lamb. So we see here a beautiful picture of biblical theology where all that we learned and read and studied in the book of Exodus is now finding its glorious fulfillment through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is specifically saying that, getting us to see it. This song of Moses in Revelation brings us back to the song of Moses in Exodus 15, but takes us much further to the song of the Lamb. This has our Christ who was slain for us. This has with it judgment. This has with it salvation. This has with it forgiveness of sins, pardons of sin, the removal of sin, redemption, justification. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Tom Schreiner commenting on this says, The deliverance under Moses anticipated and pointed forward to the greater redemption accomplished by the Lamb. Hence, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are genetically related, since the promises made to Moses are finally and ultimately fulfilled in the salvation accomplished by the Lamb. Likewise, the exodus from Egypt points forward to the redemption, the exodus from sin, accomplished by Jesus Christ. That exodus coming out of slavery was something, wasn't it? That's a big story. It's foundational. It's one we need to know. The Passover story is incredible. The blood on the doorpost, the death angel, all of that, in order to be saved by simply trusting God and believing that what he says is best. What a story. We need to know that. But it is only a picture and a glimpse of the bigger, more effective story that if anybody will turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will be saved. They will not be judged. They will be forgiven. You'll be welcomed into the family of God. God will gladly forgive your sins and receive you into his family Because of what Christ has done. That's what the song is about. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. I also want us to recognize, we've already seen it here in this song, that there is clearly an emphasis on all nations. It says there in verse 3, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Jesus is not simply a king over a certain, pe- certain place or a, a certain time period. He is king over everything, all nations. And in this work that he's doing, verse 4 tells us, all nations will come and worship you. There is coming a day where there will be less and less dividing lines. There is coming a day where there will be less and less divisions and there is coming a day very soon at the end when the wrath of God is finished where there will be a God and there will be people and it will be which side are you on and it won't matter which uh, side you've chosen, it won't matter which team you've joined up with, it will be God and his salvation and God and his judgment and the song is reminding us of this. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. I know you like music. You got music in your car. You got music on your phone. You turn on music when you're cleaning the house. We're, we're into music. It's worth asking here today, do you like this type of song? Now, we don't know the beat. We don't know if it's country music or you know, church music or what. It doesn't tell us anything like that. We just know the content of it. We know the lyrics to it. I want to ask you here today, do you like the song? Do you like songs that speak about what God has done? Do you like songs that his people sing? The Bible describes salvation as putting a new song in your heart. It's not what we're making up. That's what God describes Salvation is God putting a new song in your heart. May revelation serve us well to show us what the songs of heaven will be like. Specifically here, the song of Moses. The song of the Lamb of salvation through judgment. But we also don't want to miss this little uh, phrase that comes in between those two songs. In verse 3. And this really caught my attention in verse 3. It says, they, sang, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. What a nice little description we have there of Moses. As if somebody who's reading the Bible and has finally made it to the end of it, to the book of Revelation, as if they needed to be reminded that Moses was the servant of God. You know that Moses is the servant of God. But you don't hear this phrase very much. Moses here, at the end of God's word, is called the servant of God. Y'all, this is rare. This is rare. There's lots of things to be remembered for. This is hundreds and hundreds of years later than when he was the servant of God, because he is dead now. He, this is him being described as the servant of God. He could have been known as the one who sinned. He could have been known as the one who led. He could have been one that led them all the way to the brink of the promised land but was not allowed to enter in. Only Joshua was allowed to do that. He could have been led as the one who was involved in the ten plagues. Of course, he's known because he had a, a speech impediment. Moses stuttered, and he is known for that. There's lots of things that Moses can be known for. But Revelation wants to keep it simple and describe him in a most beautiful way as the servant of God. The word servant isn't too far removed from us these days. We we use that. We'll say he's a servant. If somebody works hard, if somebody's helpful, if somebody's kind, they're a servant. There may not be that many servants, but hopefully at your workplace and in, in your home, and your family, at, you know, in your office, at your school, or whatever, there's some servant people. Servant-hearted is, a, is an expression that we use. The people that work hard, the people that are willing to put in extra hours, the ones that show up early and stay late, the ones that contribute a lot. Serving is a beautiful characteristic and I hope that it's one that you're trying to cultivate in your life. I hope it's one we're trying to cultivate in our children. Learn to serve and be helpful. But we also can recognize that just because you serve doesn't mean you're serving God. This description of servant of God means a lot to us. It means that the serving that Moses did, he did to God. He did for God. In the ways that Moses worked or acted or the ways that he helped or contributed, he did it to God and for God. He didn't do it because, hey, somebody had to do it. He didn't do it because, hey, just the organization needed it. He didn't do it because, hey, that's the way he was raised. All of those things are great, great uh, reasons for doing it. There's a bigger reason for doing what we do. He was a servant of God. He did what he did because it mattered to God. He did what he did because it pleased God. He did what he did because God had put it in his heart to do things that obeyed God and served God. And he's described as this way. And this, I'm telling you, is rare. The phrase, the servant of God, the, the servant of God, is only found in the Bible six times. There's only six times in the Bible where you have the servant of God 1 Chronicles 6, 2 Chronicles 24, Nehemiah 10, Daniel 9, Romans 13, and here, Revelation 15. With one exception, Romans 13, which is talking about the government's ability to, to judge, okay, which is a totally, totally different topic. Other than that, all other five cases, it only talks about Moses. This is fascinating. Nobody else in the entire Bible is known as the servant of God. Only six places. Five of them say the servant of God, and each time it's Moses. That's big. That's important. Now, if you want to switch over to the just, just servant of God, take out the servant of God. There's two more of those. So we go from six to eight. James 1.1, 1, 1, Titus one one. James writing servant of God, talking about himself, Paul writing to Titus talking about himself. Paul says he's a servant of God, James says he's a servant of God, but the phrase the servant of God is only found a few times and every time it's talking about Moses. There also are places where God himself says my servant Moses. Where God says my servant Moses. Now, that's, that, that's significant, and there's something to that, okay? There's something to that. that. He was serving, he was helpful, he was contributing. But I want us to recognize that where it says it here, the servant of God in Revelation 15 is specifically mentioned with the Song of Moses which takes us back to the Exodus, which gets us to see that his serving of God was not merely that he was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which we love those. It wasn't just merely that he was a blessing to those around him. His serving God was being obedient and loyal to God no matter what. His serving God was being devoted to God and the mission and the calling, whatever it asked. When God told Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh, you look this up in the beginning of Exodus. You're gonna go to Pharaoh and you're gonna tell him, let my people go. Moses makes excuse after excuse after excuse. To be totally honest, Moses didn't want to. He didn't want to serve God in that way. We all want to serve God in some ways. We do. We all want to be the nice, kind, helpful person that gets a pat on the back. Everybody wants to be a pastor in October. We were here. Everybody wants the four of us were missing today. Pastor appreciation, y'all are calling us up front. Everybody wants to be pastor appreciation. I mean, to be a pastor during pastor appreciation. But there's parts of the job that aren't as beautiful. And there's times where it's not as good. And there's times where we're sick over it. When you serve God, that's the way it goes. If you're a parent, if you're a friend, if you're a spouse and you're going to live faithfully and loyalty to God, loyally to God, there are times when you'd wish it wouldn't have to be that way. And you keep serving God if you know his worth, if you know him. When the Bible casually mentions in Revelation 15 that Moses, the servant of God, They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and it just keeps going. We're not to think Moses held the door for people, probably did, but we're to think a lot deeper than that. Moses served God when it wasn't always enjoyable. He lived his life for God through the ups and the downs, quite literally, through the Through the judgments, through the exodus. Remember how many times they were traveling through the wilderness and they complained against him and they said, you're the worst and we wish we were back there. You're going to kill us here, right? All of that stuff, Moses is described as the servant of God. We're not quite finished yet, but I do want to challenge you to serve God. Be a servant of God. I know you serve your children. I know you serve your household. You serve your grandchildren. I know that you're a servant. I know you're helpful. I know you're a blessing in so many ways. You're a blessing in our lives. I encourage you to make sure you're a servant of God. That there's a high calling that drives you. That there's a source that fuels you. That there's a truth that you're looking to daily to know. What does it look like to serve God in this space? What does it look God to serve God in this capacity? What does it look like to serve God in this way? What does it look like to serve God in the situation where God has me? That you can identify yourself as a servant of God. We don't just do what we do. We don't just do what we do for the benefit of those around us, although that is beautiful and that is a characteristic, that's a symptom of it. We do what we do because we know our Father in heaven can be pleased through it. Moses was a servant of God. What will you be remembered for? Are you serving God? And the beautiful thing about salvation through judgment Is that while we study this today and the Bible tells us that it could be any day, it has not come yet. You can change today and become a servant of God. You could tell your spouse today, hey, I know I've not been serving God, but I want to get it right today. You can start serving God now. And the beautiful thing about salvation through judgment is it's not how you started, it's how you finish. It will be a beautiful day for you on that day when they say, man, he really turned his life around. He became a servant of God. He set his heart on God, and he served. He did what he did. In July of 2003, I landed in Fairdale, Kentucky. We're coming up on 20 years. And from the very, very first day here, the first Sunday that I was here, they invited us to come to a 9 a.m. prayer meeting. And at that time, we called it Prayer Partners. I don't know why. Nobody partnered up except for the whole group was a partner. So now we don't call it Prayer Partners. On that up, this first Sunday that I was here, we used to meet in here, but now we got a big band, and they take up this space in the mornings. So now we meet downstairs at 9 a.m. if anybody wants to pray. But the first Sunday that I was here in 2003, Mr. Doug Williams was here praying. And unless I've been sick or out of town, I've been here every single Sunday to pray. Nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. And Mr. Doug Williams has never missed unless he's been sick or out of town, he's always here. Now, there may be a lot of ways where Mr. Doug's not the best guy in the world. I don't know. I don't know how you know him. But from my perspective, he's a servant of God in that he prays for this church. This morning, he was here. Canaan was there with us. This morning, he was here praying. And he prayed something like this, God, Help everybody in this community, the neighborhoods, the schools. Help them to know that you love them. But God, don't let it be for our glory. Let it be for your glory. He prayed that this morning, didn't he? There's a lot of things that he may not be the best at. But a 9 a.m. prayer before anybody else shows up that prays that is serving God. We needed that reminder this morning. We needed that reminder. We're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this for God. We're not doing this just for you all. We're doing this for God. We're all not doing this for the community around us. We're doing this for God. And then the result of that is the blessing that, 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 that sprinkles on everything else. Moses is described as the servant of God. And they may never write it down for you in that way, but may you also serve to be a servant of God. Number one, the song. Number two, the servant. And then lastly, here we go the singing. This is different from the song. This is the singing. I want to ask who is singing and why are they singing and what are they singing? If you look back up to verse 2, we have a mention here of the beautiful scene, the majestic scene, sea of glass mingled with fire. They're not being burnt up, though, and it's those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. Verse 3 says, and they sing, the ones who had conquered, the conquering ones. Why? Singing to God because they're not being judged. Singing to God because they've been saved. Singing to God because they're being saved. Singing to God because their hearts have been set free from sin. In the beautiful picture of the Exodus and being let go from slavery and sent out, and they all marched out, and there they go on their way like a million people walking through the wilderness with God as their leader and Moses going before them. That vivid picture of deliverance and freedom and out of captivity is what has happened in our hearts. Our sins are gone. We've been set free. We're forgiven. And we sing about that. We've conquered. Conquered. Conquered the devil. Conquered sin. Conquered death. Conquered the need to prove ourselves. Conquered the need to earn something. Conquered all of that worldly, ungodly, selfish, self-righteous stuff. We've overcome that through the work of Christ. The songs in heaven are clearly about God and his salvation. It's called here the song of the lamb. There's a song, there's a servant, and there's those that are singing. But let's not miss here this morning that not everybody in this passage is singing. Some will be singing and some will be judged. Because they didn't believe in the one who was judged for them. I want to ask you here today, when that day comes, will you be the ones singing? Trust in Christ. Be ready. Know that he is a life saver and a heart changer and a sin forgiver. Love the song. Be a servant. Be a part of the ones that are singing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Revelation 15 as an introduction to the seven bowls. Father, we thank you for that connection to the Old Testament, Exodus, and Moses, and the song of the Lamb. Father, thank you that there is deliverance in Christ. And Father, make us those who have a song to sing, a song in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to process Are we the ones singing? Are we servants of God? Thank you for Moses being described as that. Father, work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this final song, let's respond. If you're here today and you know you need to set your life on Christ, would you do it? If you're here today and you think, I've never been baptized and I need to be baptized, would you make that decision today? Let us help you with that. We've got some other people lined up to get baptized here in the next couple weeks, but you know you're not ready, you know you're not focused, and you know that now is time. Do it. As we sing this final song today, let's respond.